Father, we have worshipped you with our songs. We've exalted your name. We've accepted your invitation to join you in your throne. To praise you, to honor you, to bow down before you in our hearts. Father, we have come before you and, and celebrated your name. Celebrated what your son has done. And now, Father, we open your word. We ask that you would make us eager in our hearts to hear. May our hearts be open and receptive to whatever training. Anoint your servants today that, that we would be faithful to the word of God, that we would be people who are subservient to God's word. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the day. In fact, unfortunately, it's been repeated over and over and over again. I, I was asked to speak. And when I was asked to speak, they said, now we want you to present the gospel. And I remember it. I, re I walked in, and I began to talk about the gospel, and I looked, and, and I saw the eye rolls. Oh, the gospel. I saw the watches being checked. And that was by the leadership. You know, I, I, I remember this little kid, he was sitting just a couple rows back, and, and I said, we're going to talk about the gospel. And the kid goes, oh, that again? I've heard that. Wow. Does that sum that up for you? Oh, Pastor Greg, same old, same old, been there, done that. Pastor Greg, I, I, I've heard this four spiritual laws. I've done the Romans road. I've checked that box off. I've got my salvation pass. I put it up on the wall. And there it sits. Uh, because of my age, I now get stuff in the mail from something called AARP. <laughs> Anyone have an amen on that? Yeah. And you know what? Their opening catchphrase is this. If you think that's ARP, you don't know ARP. Well, I want, to, I want to steal it, and I want to rephrase it. If you think that's all the gospel is, then, my friends, you don't know the gospel. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want to just show you a sliver of what the Bible has to say about the gospel. If your gospel is simply a fire insurance policy, if your gospel is something that I prayed a prayer and I took it like a trophy and it's on my shelf and now I need to get to the deeper things, I need to get to the better things, Pastor Greg, I've passed that up, then you don't know the gospel. Now look at Romans chapter 1 with me. Paul. Who is Paul? Paul is a servant, but Paul is also one of the apostles. He's the apostle called out of season. Paul's name means little. It used to mean Saul. He used to be called Saul, and he was a fighter against the church, but Jesus met him face to face, and friends, when you meet Jesus face to face, you don't win. 
And he met Jesus face to face. And Jesus changed him. This is Paul. And notice what it says. Servant of who? Christ Jesus. He bowed his knee. He bowed his heart. He bowed his life to Christ Jesus. And he was called to be an apostle. That's one set apart for a mission. One is set apart for a special message. What is that message? He goes on and explains it. Set apart for the gospel of God. Now I want you to get this. God in his grace said this man's life is going to be set apart and it's going to be set apart for the gospel. It's going to be a life that is going to be devoted to the gospel. It is going to be a life zeroed in and guess what? It's big enough. It's passionate enough. It's worth living for. And this is going to be Paul. Let's go on. Which he promised. What did he promise? The gospel. He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Spirit. In fact, the prophets would read, reread, and read, and reread, looking, going, we want to know this gospel. We want to know this promise. We want to know it. Concerning who? His son. You cannot separate Jesus from the gospel. The moment you try, it's no longer the gospel. If anyone comes to you and says, I believe the gospel, but man, I'm not real sure about that Jesus fella, guess what? That's not the gospel. The gospel and Jesus cannot be separated. Notice secondly with me, as, as we quickly go on. Concerning his son who was descended from David, that's his earthly lineage according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection, which is part of the gospel from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. That's because of the gospel. To bring about the obedience of faith. That is the impact of the gospel. For the sake of his name among all nations. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. How are you called to belong to Jesus Christ, friends? You're gonna, I'm going to have you respond. It is the... Oh, come on now. Okay. I know we got some hidden Baptists in here. I could hear, I could tell. It is the gospel. And we are going to be focused on the gospel for the next three weeks, including you who belong to Jesus Christ. They belong because of the gospel. To all who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, and you're called to be saints by the gospel. Grace to you and peace from God. You can't get grace. You can't get peace from God apart from the gospel. Without the gospel, there's no reconciliation. There's no friendship between God and man. But let's go on. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith. Where did they get their faith? From the gospel is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness that I serve with my spirit. Get this. Why? Who do I serve? In my spirit. In the gospel of his son without ceasing. I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may by, be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. Where did this faith come? It came from the gospel. It's gospel-centric. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, I want you to get this. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I want you to get this. Romans is considered Paul's greatest writing. Many call it the constitution of our faith. It is the deepest book you can tear apart in the New Testament except for the possibly Hebrews. I mean, this is the deep of the deep. And what is Paul saying? When I go, I'm going to preach the gospel. Now, when he goes to Rome to preach the gospel, is he preaching it to believers or unbelievers? Guess what? It's believers. And if you look at all the books that Paul is used by God to write, they're all to believers. And guess what Paul keeps talking about? The gospel. It is so crucial to the Christian life to fully understand the gospel, its impact, its implications, that if we try to live our lives without that gospel impact, we will have anemic Weak spiritual lives. I'm not trying to oversell this, folks. This is what it's saying. And so when he says, I'm eager to preach to you who are in Rome, he is saying, I want to tell believers about the gospel. Now get verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I love that. For it is the power of God for salvation. Without the gospel, there is no salvation. It's God's power to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the gospel is key to our salvation. But I want you to catch this. The gospel is also key to our everyday walk as believers. If we stop here, we miss out on the message. For look at the next verse. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, and we got a big connector word here, for faith. You want to have faith? Then you need to understand the gospel. You want to know what it's all about. You want to be able to live it. For Notice what it says, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. How do I live by faith? I live by faith through the gospel. To separate it is fatal to your Christian walk. But you know, a lot of a lot of us as believers, we, we take that and, Pastor Greg, you know, I, I prayed the prayer. I, I, I got the life insurance. I, I, I got the fire insurance. I'm okay. And guess what? Pastor Greg, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling in my faith. I'm struggling in my walk. I'm struggling. It's because we believe so many myths about the gospel. The next three weeks... My dear friend Jeremy is uh, this week and the next two weeks is going to be unfolding some of this for us. 
He's going to be unfolding the gospel. He's going to be tackling some of the myths that have maybe rooted in our hearts. Jeremy is a church planter. Jeremy has also been my friend and served side by side with me for 10 years. And this is a man whose heart beats for the gospel. So Jeremy, tell us what the gospel is, as I've told us what it isn't. Well, thank you, Greg. And uh, good morning to all of you. It's so good to be here worshiping with you, opening the word with you. Let me just say, Buffalo Free Church, uh, I just, it was hard to let Greg and Donna go. We love them so much. I've had a the great opportunity of being on staff with him for the past 10 years, and uh, that was a difficult moment for us. But let me also say just selfishly that if they were going to be called anywhere, it doesn't surprise me at all that they were called to this work here. Greg is a shepherd's shepherd without question. Uh, you are all extremely fortunate to have him here. But if he was going to be called to do this work in this season, God was gracious enough to put him 35 minutes away. Uh, so that we could still be partnered together, so that we could still, uh, so I could still learn from this man in the coming years. And I'm so thankful to Greg for inviting me to open the scriptures this morning to preach on this topic that's so important. The great reformer Martin Luther once wrote this. He said, most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. But this isn't a concept that I've always understood. Much like what Greg spelled out for us in terms of the struggle to really grasp what the gospel is for believers, this was my story. See, I grew up in a great evangelical free church of America, a church in Rockford, Illinois, much like this church. It was a great place for me to learn about Jesus, to be given real opportunities for growth and discipleship. And I grew up in a Christian home. Mom and dad both believed in the gospel regularly spoke that gospel into my life. And yet despite all of this, as I grew and as I went off to college for the, the purpose of pastoral ministry, I have to say that at this point in time in my life, my view of the gospel was small. And I also think that it's something that over the course of the last ten years I've seen to be commonplace in the church. I think this is spiritual warfare. I think this is one of Satan's greatest schemes to sideline us. Because I understood why the gospel was important for people who didn't believe in Jesus, right? I, I, I got why my non-believing friends and co-workers and neighbors needed to hear the gospel to the point where I really think I saw the word gospel as synonymous with outreach or evangelism. But I, for the life of me, I could not understand why the gospel would connect to my spiritual life and growth as I progressed. So much like Greg said, I saw the gospel as a doorway into the kingdom. But then, I, just like any doorway, I saw my spiritual life after moving through that doorway as leaving the gospel behind. Right, You've got to leave the doorway behind and progressing on to something greater, something deeper. I didn't want to know about things that I had already heard or learned. I craved hearing new things, surprising things, cutting-edge things about my faith. Now, please hear me this morning. That, that can be a really good thing, right? That someone desires to know more and more about the God that they serve is a gift. 
But in my case, I have to say, I can speak for myself, it was pride. Cutting myself off from the very source of Christian life and growth. The very source of really being able to understand God more and more. To get to know His heart. I was experiencing what the late, great John Stock calls the unhealthy lust for originality. I wanted originality. Give me something original. And the gospel was the farthest thing from original for a kid raised in a Christian home, raised in an evangelical church, going to a Christian private school in which we heard the gospel on the intercom every morning during devotions, right? This good news at the center of the Bible about a king who leaves his kingdom to enter into the world of people who rebelled against him and tried to dethrone him and set themselves up as his enemies so that he could die for them so that they might reign with him in his kingdom, that message, that true story, if you can believe it, had become disinteresting to me. Let me just say this morning, brothers and sisters, if we come to a point in which the good news that stands at the heart of Scripture is disinteresting to us, I think we're in a very dangerous place. And, and here's the thing. While the, in the Lord's graciousness, there came a point where I began to see the, this good news again. And I was so thankful for the sheer grace of an Almighty God in my life. So thankful that the Gospel was no longer just a set of propositions that I had come to understand or believe as a child that I needed for salvation transactionally, but instead became to me a precious part of my story. And while all that was true, I also began to see over and over again this hard reality. My natural impulse will just never be to return to the gospel again and again. Because of the result of sin in my life, because of I really firmly believe spiritual warfare, the great temptation will be for me not to rest in what God has done, but to instead trust in my own frail attempts to please an almighty God. To rest in my own efforts instead of resting in His grace. And yet the more I opened the Scriptures, the more I just clearly saw it directing us back to the gospel. The more of a disconnect I also saw between the gospel and the world around me, right? The more myths, as Greg said, that I began to see held by people both inside and outside of the church. Even myths that we're going to deal with this morning regarding what the gospel is. What is this gospel? What's this good news that Scripture gives us that stands at the center of the whole Bible? That everything in the Scriptures point us to. Well, one myth about the good news that's common today is that what God has done for us in Jesus is primarily about what we need to do for ourselves. That the gospel is actually moralistic. That God wants to create a, a group of good boys and girls. Right? That he's primarily concerned with our behavior and therefore the Bible is all about you and what you need to do in order to receive God's blessing. That's one myth. Another myth about the good news of Jesus is that what God has done for us is primarily about our feelings and our self-esteem. It's therapeutic. God wants us to feel better about ourselves. And that's what stands at the heart primarily of the gospel. That's another myth. Yet another myth about the good news is that what God has done for us in Jesus is actually disconnected from real life. I mean, it played an important role for me a long time ago maybe, but 
Now it's, it's deistic. God sort of wound up the world and he set it off on its course. And now he's not interested, unless we have a problem, then we can call upon him and sort of summon our cosmic janitor to come and clean up our mess. And then he steps out again until there's another problem but is largely disconnected. These myth, myths are commonplace in the church today and yet we have to answer two extremely important questions regarding that set of beliefs. First, do they come even close to reflecting the biblical gospel? And second, does it really matter? So when you look at the Bible, do we, do we read actually a book that's written for us, about us, and about what we need to do primarily in order to secure God's blessing? Or do we read in Scripture an appeal that says, look, it's not primarily about you or me, but instead it's primarily about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ which has enormous implications for us. But just as important is the question, why, in the end of the day, does clarity about the gospel matter? Right? Because I'm arguing this morning and for the next couple of weeks that it matters deeply, it matters greatly. But why? You know, if, if we've been saved, if we've checked off those boxes, as Greg said, why do we need to return to it again? Why do we need to know it? Why do we need to be clear about what it is. Well, I want to mainly focus on answering the first question this morning. I want to talk about what the gospel is. And then over the coming two weeks, I want to keep coming back to what the gospel is, while also talking about how the gospel works, why it's important for us to keep returning to it. So what makes Paul so eager to preach the gospel, even to those who are a part of the church? What makes Paul so convinced that the gospel isn't just for non-believers, our friends and neighbors and co-workers who don't yet believe at this stage in their life, but also for the life of the church, right? So that we can speak it to one another, so that the church of Christ has something called gospel fluency, that we speak the gospel fluently to one another for our own life and growth here as believers. What is it about this righteousness of God that we need to consider and reconsider again and again and again? And Paul says, you want to know? Well, hear your story this morning. Hear your story. And our story, at least the way that Paul lays it out for us in the book of Romans, begins with a problem. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul makes it clear we have a major problem. For while God in His creation desires for us to know Him, right? He created us lovingly so that we might know Him for His glory and our joy in Him. Here's what we did. We, re we rejected Him. He goes on to say that from the very beginning, we decided that we knew better than God on how to be God. We dethroned Him. We set ourselves up on the throne of our own lives. And we replaced him with other things, the text tells us, things that could never carry the weight that we, we need it to carry for us. Things that could never be our Savior, and yet we treat them like they're our Savior. And this has been our natural state, the natural state of our hearts since sin entered the world. Both Jew and Gentile, both those who had the law and those who knew intuitively the things of the law because they're image bearers, they had it impressed on their hearts as image bearers, all of us have a deep problem, and the deep problem is our sin. And because of sin, the wrath of God is to be justly poured out on sin and rebellion. God being just, 
must bring, it's kind for him to do this, he must bring his wrath to bear on sin. We deserve to be eternally separated from him, from all the life and the joy that he brings, which means for us death and judgment and destruction for all eternity. And the question I think that naturally comes up in our hearts when we hear this news is, so okay, so what are we going to do about this problem? What can I do about this? Right? And Paul continues to, I think, bait us in this way. He provides us with extremely useful information that we might be tempted to use in order to help ourselves out of, of what we see as an unfortunate situation, to say the least. Paul says this. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, God will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. So, so here's really the issue when it comes to the way we've been hardwired by sin to deal with this problem. The issue is that we come to this section of Scripture. We read about our problems in Romans 1. We've rejected God. We're due His wrath. And then we get to this section in Romans 2 and we think this is the good news. Right? We say, hey, look, honey, look. Okay, it's going to be okay because, look, those who by patience and well-doing seek for good, the text says, will get eternal life. So, okay, yeah, right. All of those humans who do evil, for those people there will be wrath for all eternity. Understandable, right? But look at what the text says. God will render me according to my work, so as long as I do good. God will render me glory and honor if I'm a good person. So I will do good so that God will have to render me eternal life. But friends, don't we see that based on what Paul is arguing here, that would be just as absurd, more absurd, than a criminal standing trial in a courtroom deciding to make his defense by standing up and saying, members of the jury, hear me. I'm not asking for mercy or pardon. I want justice. And if justice is to be done, I demand a full acquittal. Yes, I committed the brutal murder of which I am accused, but I'm not guilty. Members of the jury, see, you must consider all of my good deeds, not merely as mitigating circumstances, but as the reason for exonerating me. Because the goodness of my other deeds actually outweighs the crime that I committed. My good deeds require a not guilty verdict. If justice is to be done, you must find me innocent of murder. And of course, any argument that sounded this way would be laughed out of the courtroom as entirely unjust. Because no good works could possibly bring about a not guilty verdict that would even remotely be considered just in this circumstance. And yet, this is how we sound even worse when we read Romans 2, 6-8 through 8 is our good news. This is how we sound when we begin to fool ourselves into thinking that the way we can deal with a sin problem before an almighty God is through human effort. No, friends, Romans 2, 6 through 8 is not immediately good news for us. I think Paul is giving us more bad news. I mean, it will be good news when we rightly understand it, but not because of us. As I said, I think Paul is doing a bit of a bait and switch here. He's saying, look, God renders, it's true, he does. He renders each one according to his works. Those who turn aside and do evil are deserving his wrath. Those who do good are deserving eternal life. But then any inkling 
you might have had when you read that that made you think, oh yeah, good, I can be good, are just dashed upon the rocks of chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Where Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. You want to do good? No one does good. Not even one. Here's your faith story, Christian. You were in a place of absolute, utter brokenness and despair from which you could poss never possibly deliver yourself or help yourself. And praise the Lord that our story doesn't end there. That we don't close our Bibles this morning and go home in despair. That's what we deserve, but that's not what, what we do. Because now Paul gives us the good news. Chapter 3, verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now we're going to be unpacking this a bit in the weeks to come, understanding more and more about this. But at its base, what Paul is saying is, I'm not made right through the works of the law. I could never live the Romans 2, 6-8 through 8 life. I can't do it. So what makes me right? In what sense can God look upon me and declare me innocent of a crime I so clearly committed? Well, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. It's because of what he did, not because of what I do. And this means that all of us, here's the gospel, we come to a place in our lives where we recognize we can't save ourselves, we can't do anything for ourselves. But here's the problem too. That's the biggest lie that culture wants to sell you. And friends, they're selling it wholesale. They're selling it on those giant Costco pallets, in those giant Costco tubs by the truckload. That you can save yourself, that you can rescue yourself, that you can help yourself. And it's a lie. And we must come to the place of seeing our inability to reach a holy God. Even if I thought I knew God, uh, I spent time in the scriptures, but I'm still reliant on my works in order for him to somehow give me his blessing. We must see that without God's work, we're completely bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize they have nothing. Spiritual poverty. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We must see that without that posture of utter brokenness, as Psalm 14 tells us, we're in great terror, for we are deserving of the wrath of a perfectly just God. But because God is gracious and he's merciful and he desires for us to know him, here's what he did. He did what we couldn't do. He lived that perfect life, described in Romans 2.7. He was the only person in hu human history to do what Romans 2.7 says. He deserved eternal life because he, in well-doing, sought for glory and honor. Right? He did good. The only person in human history who truly did good. And so he deserved eternal life, but instead what he got was wrath and fury. He took the punishment of Romans 2.8. Right? Even though we lived Romans 2.8 lives. Even though we were self-seeking. We didn't obey the truth. 
We got glory and honor and peace through Jesus. Jesus gets what we deserve so that we can have what he deserved, right? This is the gospel. Because he died the death that we deserved, he stood in our place as our substitute. Instead of me and instead of you, this is where we should have been, where the Father's wrath should have been poured out on us. It was poured out on Christ, and he rose to new life. So that now, friends, look, if we come to him with empty hands, not filling up our hands with things, trinkets, things that we think have value, and coming before him and saying, see, is this enough? But putting that stuff down, recognizing our spiritual poverty, and coming to him with nothing, we can have new life in him. We can be reconciled with God. We can be called righteous. And friends, as we believe this, this has very real implications for us. This moves us out to a different kind of life, and I'm excited to talk with you more about that in the weeks ahead. So, the gospel, it was big enough for Paul. He was stranded on an ocean. He's been beaten by rods. He's been stoned and left for dead. He has been bitten by poisonous snakes. He has had time and time again gone through the worst that humanity can throw at him, but it was worth it for the gospel. How does it impact our daily life? Dan? How old are you now? Fifteen? So you're getting ready for driver's ed and all that good stuff? Yeah. Okay, so let's say I come up to Dan and I put my arm around him. I said, Dan, I want to give you a car. Here's the keys. And I hand him the keys and he shows me his brand new license. And old Dan... Oh, he, oh, thank you, Pastor Greg. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Dan's dad is going, thank you, Greg. I didn't want to have to get him a car. Thank you for doing that. And so a week later, I see Dan. Dan, what are you doing? I'm pushing my car, Pastor Greg. You're what? I'm pushing my car. Pastor Greg, I love the car. Me and my buddies, we push it all around town. In fact, I've learned if I can park it on a hill, I can coast to the bottom. And I go, oh, Dan, Dan, toss me the keys. And he tosses me the keys. I said, can I sit behind the wheel? He says, sure, Pastor Greg, sit behind the wheel. And I sit behind the wheel, and I put the keys in the ignition, and I start the car. And he goes, whoa, what's that noise? I said, oh, Dan, you've had the car but you've never used the power. Now, Dan wouldn't do that. First of all, Dan's too smart for that. And Dan, I do want to um, give you a car, so I I got you one. Um, It is a limited edition, so uh, just to let you know. I don't don't go second class for my friends. I, I just, so. The gospel. What Jeremy's going to talk about is how you turn on the power. 